Hi. Hi, Paul. <coughs> My name is Henning Mundel. I'm a retired plant breeder at the research station. So oh. just so you know, my background biology is a bit different area than yours. But a couple things, I have a question too, but I need this preamble. Okay. A couple things is um, you're, t you're ta uh, showing us pictures of uh, millennium or more, but in evolutionary time, 30, 35 generations <coughs> is not really that much in evolutionary time. Mm -hmm. But there seems to be an underlying assumption in what you presented to us today mm -hmm. as though we're dealing with natural selection. But in humans, how can we assume that we're dealing with natural selection? We wouldn't have any people with Down syndrome and other things like that. And also, we don't freely breed like in native um, animal populations and so on. So I'm wondering... And I thought you were also going to have some animal data, some uh, primate data to relate to on this. But uh, could you maybe relate to that a bit? Sure. Um, w one thing, I just, just with respect to how fast evolution can happen and whether you need these really, really long stretches of time for it to occur, I'd, I'd recommend there, there's this fantastic book that you should get. It's called The Beak, Beak of the Finch by Jonathan Weiner, and it describes the, the, the research by this husband and wife couple called the Grants, uh, and they do research on um, uh, Galapagos finches, and their work is showing that uh, e evolutionary changes, measurable changes, can occur uh, literally within one generation or two generations. So evolutionary can change. There, we do sort of have this traditional perspective that it, it occurs very, very slowly. That's the traditional Darwinian perspective. It actually can occur very, very rapidly. When there's selection pressure, exactly. Just this, the second point you 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 made was was about. Uh, how can there be selection pressure on humans given that uh, we have things like Down syndrome, for example? And I would say that, well, humans, humans are, 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 are under different kinds of selection pressure because there are different species, one. And two, because they, they have this unique sort of adaptation that, that other animals sort of have in a rudimentary form but that's really elaborated on in humans, and, that, and that's culture. We have these cultural adaptations that result in <clears throat> us having, you know, taking care of kin that maybe can't take care of themselves. Uh, and um, I sort of touched on that a little bit at the end of the, 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 the brief talk I gave today <clears throat> when I said that probably what's going on in terms of the, the maintenance of genes for male androphilia is that we have this uh, sort of gene culture coevolution going on. We have this um, biological predisposition in some of these women for elevated fecundity, but then we have uh, this sort of culturally elaborated pattern of elevated male androphilia that's helping the women reproduce. And so we get this sort of uh, cycle of women being more fecund and their, their, their brothers, their androphilic brothers are helping them reproduce more and it sort of becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. You, are, are you asking specifically what are the selection pressures that would result in, in, the, in favoring these particular genes? 
Am I supposed to be more brief in terms of my answers to these questions? Because so, you know what? Sometimes, the, sometimes complicated questions require complicated answers. There is no soundbite to some of these questions. So perhaps selection pressure uh, in what could otherwise be considered relatively neutral in confined populations, because we're dealing with confined populations, human families. Yeah, I think that, look, if we want to talk about sort of the evolutionary history of <clears throat> um, same-sex sexuality, we know that at some point, um, and I know this because I just finished writing a book chapter, so this is all fresh in my mind. <clears throat> we know that at some point during the late, during the, the Maya, late Miocene, when human ancestors were di diverging from, from, from the ape lineage, that there, there had to be, uh, at some point, humans evolved the capacity for exclusive same-sex sexual attraction because we do, we do not see exclusive. We see same-sex sexual behavior in animals. My, Jap my Japanese macaques, tons and tons of female-female sexual behavior, but we don't see exclusive same-sex sexual attraction and behavior in, in, in animals the way we do in humans, with, with one exception. And the one exception is uh, sheep. Sheep have exclusive male same-sex sexual attraction. There's a, a percentage of them. Um, why that was selected for, we don't know. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of theorizing around that or, or a lot of uh, research. But what I can suggest is one of the reasons it might have been selected for is because of sexually antagonistic selection. It might have been selected for because at least originally the female kin of those, those indi male individuals that had exclusive same-sex sexual attraction gained a reproductive advantage over women who didn't have those genes. And that reproductive advantage is documented in places like Italy, United States, Samoa. The female kin of male homosexuals, they have more babies. Um, you know, if that was just one study, I wouldn't be so confident in stating that. But the fact that it's multiple studies, and it's multiple studies by different research groups and in different countries, then I start to be I'm – pr I'm pretty conservative in terms of my interpretation of the data. But when you see that pattern where over and over and over again that it gets replicated, you're like, well, there's something there. There's something real about that pattern. So. <clears throat> Hi. Yeah, my name is Mark Gettle. Hi. The premise behind your uh, hypotheses are, uh, is that um, uh, gay men do not procreate. Right. Uh, well, and, but we on, know our, our on average. Yeah, on our, in our society, though, we know there's quite a lot of closet gays, and then they marry and have children, and then sometimes they even discover that there may be gay later on in life. Yeah. So do you have any statistics in our society, what proportion of gays or how many, what, yeah, what the percentage of gays that actually do marry and have children? Well, uh, uh, what I can tell you is that the best demographic data we have from population-wide surveys indicate that androphilic men, gay men, they reproduce either not at all, or if they do reproduce, they reproduce five to ten times less than straight men. So when you s see that kind of a pattern, 
from an evolutionary perspective, the, the conclusion is clear that genes associated with male gynophilia, with male heterosexuality, should sweep through the population, and genes for male androphilia should become extinct. I'm not saying that uh, gay guys don't ever reproduce or lesbians don't ever reproduce directly, but um, on average, uh, that doesn't happen. And my work in you know, non-Western settings leads me to believe that this, this pattern of gays and lesbians um, having children, that's sort of, I think that might be a culturally recent phenomenon. And why? Because gays and lesbians are a product of their culture as much as straight people. And if they're socialized in a culture that values the nuclear family and the production of children, then they absorb those values. In a place like Samoa, um, the reproductive rate of fafafine is virtually zero. It, it, they just don't reproduce because um, they're not they're not expected to because reproduction, direct reproduction by fafafine wouldn't be something that was valued and uh, therefore they don't feel any pressure to do that. There's other ways that they can, you know, quote-unquote, uh, serve the family. So uh, often, because of the kind of research I do, quantitative research, I, I, talk, I talk in terms of averages, group averages. Uh, I, and of course, there's variation around that average. But when we talk about averages, we're, we're basically saying, look, um, in general, this is what holds for this group. So when I say gay men are on, were, on average, gender atypical in childhood, I could walk into a gay club and randomly pick out a guy, and I, could tell, and I, could be, I would be pretty confident in telling him, this is what you were like as a kid. You didn't like rough-and-tumble play. You preferred girls as playmates. And most of the time, I'd be right, because on average, that's the typical pattern. Would I be wrong sometimes because there are always exceptions to the rule? Absolutely. But mostly I'd be right because of this idea of averages. Is that, is that answer your question? It might not answer – you know what? It might not answer your question in the way that you want me to answer it, but I'm telling you that based on what I know about the evidence that's available, that's – sometimes, you know, we get answers – that we don't want to hear because they don't fit with how we, our particular way of viewing the world, how we want the world to be. Um, whereas <clears throat> kind of the work that I do, I sort of go out into the world and try and understand it on its own terms and not try and impose my views of how I would like the world to be. If I, if I, if I get answers from the research that aren't particularly palatable from a political correct point of view, well, that's just the way science works. You know, you can, you can get these, these politically incorrect realities coming out of the science, um, but that doesn't mean you then have to turn around and say, uh, well, therefore we have to, we have to construct our, our, our the sort of moral and, and social communities around these scientific answers. Look, I always tell journalists, um, infanticide is widespread in the animal kingdom. Occurs all the baby killing occurs in lots and lots of different species. So are we then to conclude that it's natural? 
and um, and then say, okay, well, we we should allow that because it's natural. You know, taking care of the elderly is not a uh, a characteristic that, that that typifies many animal species. I don't think that that should become a, a platform for shutting down nursing homes and pushing grandma and grandpa out into the streets. You know, we can we can do the science and sort of understand the world on its own terms, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to construct our communities according to the answers that we derive from that science. Thank you for your uh, presentation. It's been very interesting. My name is Nadia Campbell, and I would like to ask you about hormones. You haven't mentioned anything about uh, hormones in... In in uh, in the homosexual uh, product of of people, sure. and um, how how often do you think a mother would bear children? Would she just like have uh, one child that would perhaps become homosexual, or what would be in her makeup or in the makeup of the egg and the sperm that would perhaps make more than one mm. uh, homosexual child come to a family. And then, like, I've had quite a few children in my life, and none of them are of the homosexual tendencies. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was that if you're <coughs> alluding this as to be genetic, mm. and you, you're saying that there are some indications that they are finding some results with uh, the genetic probing with that. Does that mean, do you think that perhaps down the road that if you can get rid of um, Huntington's disease, perhaps Parkinson's with genetic tinkering, that you could remove or make the gay people extinct? Um, okay, so you a- I think you asked sort of three different things there. One, one you asked about hormones and um, sort of the going you know there's kind of two different ways of approaching um, studies of behavior one is an evolutionary kind of perspective and the other is a proximate kind of perspective so we can ask how did this trait evolve and then we can ask what are the mechanisms that caused that trait to be manifested those explanations are complementary but they're sort of different levels of explanation Today, what I've done is I've, I've talked to you from an evolutionary level. Uh, we could have talked about what are the proximate mechanisms, genetic, hormonal, physiological, that result in this trait manifesting. So hormonally, the, the sort of standard theory, it's called the prenatal hormone hypothesis. And it basically, in a nutshell, suggests that uh, in order for sexual differentiation to occur, in order for some individuals to masculinize and others to feminize, it's basically all about the balance of androgens, things like testosterone, that you're exposed to prenatally. So if you're exposed to androgens prenatally, you masculinize. Your body masculinizes and your brain masculinizes. And part of that masculinization process is your brain's wired to be attracted to females, that's a male typical trait. If you're not exposed to elevated levels of androgen, then you don't masculinize, you feminize, and your brain is wired differently. It's wired to be attracted to males because that's a female typical trait. Most people on the planet who are attracted to males are females. Most people on the planet who are attracted to females are males. So the idea with this is that basically gays and lesbians have been uh, exposed to atypical levels of, of, of androgens 
prenatally. And consequently, uh, they have a atypical pattern of, 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 of sexual orientation. So gay guys, whenever that part of their brain that regulates sexual partner preference is differentiating, they weren't exposed to those elevated levels of, of androgens that straight guys were. And lesbians, whenever that part of their brain was differentiating, they were, they were exposed to more androgens than the typical heterosexual woman. And <clears throat> You can, uh, you can look at gays and lesbians and see that traits that we know that are correlated with the presence of testosterone, traits that are, are correlated with the presence of testosterone are also characteristic of, of, of gay people, which, which tells us that there, there's some substance to this prenatal hormone hypothesis. I'll give, uh, do you want to, I'll give you an example, Okay. So we know, for example, that long bone growth, the growth of these long bones, it's related to testosterone. The more testosterone you have prenatally, the longer your long bones. The less testosterone, the shorter your your long bones. So straight guys have longer long bones. Straight women have shorter long bones. And and if if gay guys, for example, have atypical levels of of androgens prenatally, they should have shorter long bones, just like straight women. And that's, that's what we find. And lesbians should have longer long bones, just like straight men. And that's what we find. So there's some substance to that. The genetic stuff, you said, why do some families have more uh, gay people in their, in, in their families? Because probably they share similar genes. And we know that homosexuality clusters within families. So it's possible to have... It's, it would be nor- normative. It would be normal to have more than one homosexual individual in the same family. Yeah, yeah you're welcome. Uh, Ruth Alzinga, thank you for your presentation. My question is more to do with why... Oh, Ruth Alzinga? My, my question has to do more with Samoa, the site of your research. Like, mm-hmm. um, and I want to expand just a little bit before you answer my question. You had mentioned that the population was about 180-some thousand, mm-hmm. and also they're stuck in the middle of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about the example of the loving uncle. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm just wondering if some of that, certainly there's tolerance. That came out loud and clear from your presentation, the little boy who wears a dress and, and what have you. And I think today there is a lot of stigma, and kids get bullying for being their true self. But at the same token, some of the things you mentioned... Could it be because it's Samoa, it's small, it's not a huge population, they are very family-oriented, they're very culturally uh, together, and very tolerant. So I'm wondering, could that have made a big difference? And if you took that same research (laughs) taken in Canada, when you've got aunties and uncles and kids, you know, far spread, you don't have that sense of community. So I am interested in your, your site. Yeah. No, I... I agree with you absolutely. These these cultural differences are really important. Things like individualism versus collectivism, and things like geographic dispersion from kin. You know, you can't help your kin. You you can't behave in an uncle like manner if you're you're living far away from where your nieces and nephews are. You can't be- behave in an uncle like manner if your family's throwing you out of the house because they're homophobic. So absolutely, all of those cultural uh, factors are important and. My lab is trying to work work at teasing apart exactly which of these cultural factors are important and which ones have to occur in combination for 
for individuals to manifest this elevated pattern of uncle-like behavior. And I think bottom line, because we've studied this now in, in so many different cultures that exhibit this egalitarian pattern of male homosexuality that's typical of this culture, I think that we could go on and on studying the egalitarian form and we're not going to find it. We have to go to another culture that exhibits the transgendered form and I suspect we'll find it in those cultures because there's something about the manifestation of the transgendered form which part of the part and parcel of that manifestation is this elevated avuncularity, elevated uh, concern for the family, um, the, the trouble is it's just easier to go to the United States or Britain or Canada and do a study like this. It's a lot harder to go to a place like Samoa and get this data. And it's even harder. <laughs> I mean, I would love to. I would love to go to southern Mexico and collect data. But I already have a field site in Samoa, and I work in the gay community in Osaka, and I have a Japanese monkey field site as well, so... I'd, I'd love to do it, but <clears throat> there's only so many hours in the day. One, uh, eventually, I'll get around to it. Hi. Hi. Uh, Paul, my name is Van Christu. I want to thank you very much for uh, uh, handing a subject that has been uh, such uh, a mixed bag through the years, especially for people in this room uh, who are elderly, uh, who grew up at a time when, uh, when there was... Uh, rampant ignorance in mm. this area, mm. and uh, so it's been a real uh, a, a, a real treat to have you here today with us. Thank you. Um, now you're having studied uh, this subject in so many different venues, and having seen different cultures, sur surely you've had a uh, developed an insight into the into the cha differences in the cultures themselves, uh, over and above the the uh, scientific problem you're you're handling. What is your opinion regarding the the reason in our culture mm. for for so much antagonism and so much homophobia having developed in the Western world? Yeah, I get asked that question a lot. You know, why is it so tolerant in Samoa and and you know, relatively speaking, more intolerant here? And you know, all I can do is really speculate. I don't have I don't have a real solid answer to that, but. There was this uh, this native person who said, um, you know, we don't have the luxury in our culture of throwing people away like you do in your culture. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And I think, you know, there's something about when you're, when you're living closer to what might be called a subsistence kind of lifestyle, you need, uh, you need everyone to kind of participate in order to, for the family to survive. And you don't have the luxury of throwing someone away because you need them to plow the fields and pick the papaya and <clears throat> you know, grow, the, grow the pineapples or go fishing. And so I think there is something about living in one of these subsistence economies where it breeds a certain kind of tolerance and an acceptance of people's quirkiness and the evolution of cultural... Uh, uh, cultural systems that allow for this kind of what we would see as quirkiness. Whereas when you're, you're farther away from that kind of subsistence economy and you're living in an industrialized society, well, and one that's individualistic, well, we don't need that person and we don't need that person. And so you, you sort of have the luxury of being more intolerant in a way that they don't have. 
Everybody needs everybody there. It's kind of nice. <laughs> Thanks, Ted. I'm Bev Mundell Atherstone. Hi. Thank, thank you, Paul. That was very enlightening. <clears throat> I grew up in California, not far from San Francisco. So um, gender in San Francisco is is really quite a broad range. Mm. There's not three sexes. There's a <laughs> lot more. Yeah. So my question has to do with <clears throat> your research. Uh, I, you know, I'm fascinated and laud you for your research in this area, but you seem to be talking about three sexes. And I'm just wondering um, if perhaps with the averages and the way that you're looking at <coughs> this particular prism, um, you've narrowed it down, but actually perhaps the whole gender issue is as broad as any of the other human variants mm -hmm. because you're talking about two, uh, if we get away from the genetics and just look at the hormones, which are influenced by the genetics, and we have the male and female hormones, then wouldn't, wouldn't we have just a huge long spectrum from extreme female down to mixed, then to male? And you're talking about sort of this in-between area where the male and female mm. hormones mm. Um, are mixed, some being higher, higher male, some being higher female. Yeah. Well, I think that sort of maybe we're having two different conversations because I think you're talking about gender role presentation, no. Which I and, and I'm talking about uh, sort of sexual orientation. So what an individual finds sexually attractive. So they're related, but I but I don't disagree with you. There is this sort of spectrum of gender role presentation where you can be hyper masculine or hyper feminine, and then everything in between. Uh, with and and then <clears throat> part of that is what you find sexually attractive in terms of. Um, male-bodied individuals or female-bodied individuals. And I can tell you that all of the, for males, for example, all of the research we have suggests that males are what are called category-specific. They, almost all males, they either like one or the other if you, if you measure their genital arousal, their patterns of genital blood flow. There are, there are males, for example, that self-identify as bisexual that are interested in both. But when you measure their patterns of genital arousal, they tend to be aroused to one or the other. So the, the number of male, in terms of sexual orientation, what I'm trying to say is sexual orientation does kind of look, at least in males, it does look pretty dichotomous. Okay. Of course, even then it gets more kind of murky because mm -hmm. we have to ask, are we talking about identity are we talking about behavior? Are we talking about physiological right. genital arousal? Yeah. Are we talking about fantasies and attractions? E depending on how we yeah. define what we're talking about here, how we measure it, we're going to get a different answer if we say, well, identity is important. Well, of course, you can adopt as many identities as are under the sun. Um, behavior is important. Well, we know behaviorally people can have sex with different people. If we say no, genital arousal is important, well, then looks like it's pretty dichotomous. And if, you know, fantasies, attractions as well, that, that'll give us another answer. So, yeah, complicated. It's the nature-nurture conundrum. Yeah. Thank you. Can I just say one thing before you finish? And that's that there's this other stereotype that's maybe pertinent for the people in this room. Um, you know, I think there's this stereotype that older people 
are less are less open, less tolerant, less accepting. And I don't know, based on the readings I've done, I think you really have to kind of, I, I kind of question that. I don't walk into a room like this and think that the people in this room are going to be particularly closed-minded or uh, lacking in openness to thinking about these topics, or nor do I think that they haven't spent time thinking about these topics. So I don't, uh, yeah, I think maybe we have to question that that cultural assumption that just because you're older, you're less uh, less informed and less enlightened. I know lots of young people, lots of students that uh, are probably less informed and less enlightened than the people in this room. So anyhow, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Paul. And I am very sorry to Peter. I cut you off. You could... Will you hate me now? <laughs> I invite you to come to Paul and uh, have a private conversation. At any rate, thank you for coming, and please uh, give another applause to Paul Vasi for his interesting presentation. And thank you for coming.